Yo, we've got Zach Papier. Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, you got it. No, most people don't get it first try. So, you know, I m- people don't get my last name. So I make an effort to, you know, get it right. Filipowski. Oh, <gasps> look at us. Wow. Wow. We did it right. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. Okay. So I'm so excited to have Zach on because um, this guy jumps off of cliffs, jumps out of planes jumps off of bridges, jumps off of anything. And the way that we met, actually, I went skydiving in March now. Wow. It's been a while. And yeah. yeah, And his friend, Tony took me on a little tandem jump. And then we started following each other from there. And now I got to get on. I got to go on a jump with you and figure this out, like do another one. And then, you know, slowly graduate, graduate into the jumping by myself. We'll see if I get there. <laughs> yeah, I would love to take you for a jump. That was, that was super funny. I just saw that video, your reel of you doing a tandem on my, uh, you know, I was just flipping through reels and I saw it and I recognized Tony and I was just like, oh, that's my friend, Tony. And, hey. then, uh, and then we followed each other. Yeah. So, so funny. So yeah, cool I wanted to, to meet, yeah. right. It's cool to like meet in the virtual ether face-to-face <laughs> yeah one step forward but yeah I really wanted to have you on because um I admire the fact that it looks as though you don't have any fear in your life and so I want to know like how you guys started with this like what was the not no pun intended the jumping point of how all of this got started for you and why um so let's see I guess it probably starts with um like when I was young I always liked doing um like uh you know action sports I guess like I grew up riding BMX bikes like hitting little jumps in my driveway and um and as a as a little kid as a BMX rider I looked up to this dude Matt Hoffman who um I don't know if you know who Matt Hoffman is anybody name sounds familiar yeah, so he was huge back. Uh, I mean, he still is a legend. He, he invented tons of tricks on BMX bikes and stuff. But I remember when I was a little kid, he did um, he did like a BMX skydive for Nickelodeon or something. What? So he rode his bike out the back of a sky van. And um, I remember being a little kid and being like, oh, I'm totally going to be a skydiver someday, you know? And yeah. I grew up going to the local reservoir, jumping off cliffs, you know, doing flips and stuff into water, of course, and had a trampoline in my backyard. And um, so fast forward to like 2016, um, I was living in Santa Barbara, uh, working at a call center for like some website that sold uh, like uh, background checks, basically. And so people would call me to like cancel their subscriptions. They'd be all pissed off. They got billed for like three months and they didn't notice, you know? Right. You were that guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's all your fault. Life wasn't too bad. And yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. It was pretty miserable at times. It was easy and money was all right for what it was. But, you know, um, I was like, man, like this can't be it, you know, like I got to do something with my life, you know? Right. <laughs> and I remember I saw some, um, I, I remember just seeing some videos online of people skydiving and I realized like, wait a minute, I'm like well into being old enough to do this stuff. And 
people are making a living taking people skydiving. So I was like, I was just so, I was immediately like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm just going to go make a living doing something cool that I, you know, that I can be proud of and something that I'll enjoy, you know? Right. So, so, so when you did this the first time, how long is the process to get involved with, you know, being a professional skydiver? Um, so I guess I'm technically a professional because I get paid to do it now, but yeah. um, I'm by no means like, you know, among the best skydivers and, and I'm actually a relatively new base jumper because I don't really charge at it. I do it like here and there, but anyway, to answer your question, um, I did my first jump in 2016 at a drop zone. Uh, so skydiving businesses or locations are called drop zones. Okay. Um, so I went there and I was like, I'm not here to do one skydive. I'm here to become a skydiver. So what do I have to do? Like, how do we get this started? And they're like, well, we can do two tandems today at like a discounted rate. And the second tandem you do, will give you what's called an altimeter. And it'll basically be a training tandem. So you'll you'll be able to actually pull the handle to deploy the parachute yourself. You just, all you have to do is pay attention to your altitude over the course of the free fall and then pull the handle at the correct altitude. So oh. a lot of drop zones do it that way um, and where you do one tandem to see what it's like and then one more tandem to uh, do a training tandem. Um, so if I went and I was like, this will be my second tandem in my life, would that be... Uh, the what what did you call it the um like a training tandem yeah the training tandem would that be it or would I have to you know it's been a while so yeah so at, where I work now at Scott of San Diego the way that we do it is um uh you, you come do a first jump course which is like a six to eight hour class on the ground um you know where you go out where you go over everything you need to know from like you know the gear to you know free fall stuff to parachute stuff to emergency procedures and landing stuff and um usually after that class we'll do a training tandem so then you have the context so that we can kind of your your tandem instructor can explain things to you over the course of the skydive we can't really communicate in free fall it's a little too loud yeah. But once the parachute's open, you know, we're able, you know, we can, we can say, okay, start your downwind and you'll already, you already did the class. So you know what that means, you know, right. Instead of just being like, okay, just, just pull, you know, but a lot of people think you need to do like 10, 20 tandems or something to start the process of learning, but you really don't, you only need to do like one or two. And some places, you know, if you're like an athletic person and you seem really heads up and you want to go straight into uh, the first jump course, there are some, some places that'll let you do that. Damn. Okay. I mean, I've thought about it. It's funny because I'll still have dreams about jumping the first time. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe I did that. And then when I remember it, I'm like, I had the most fun ever. And it was so enlightening. I was like, oh, like falling this fast doesn't feel that crazy. Like, I'm sure if you talked to Tony, he would have been like, this girl would not shut up because all I kept <laughs> saying was like, it's so peaceful. <laughs> like, oh uh, yeah especially once the parachute's open compared to the free fall once the parachute's open it's like the most peaceful thing ever you know you're just cruising around uh with the best view ever i like it's i often like say to my students i'm like isn't this nuts we're just up here you know which is like the right. funny feeling it's like you're not inside of an aircraft you're just hanging from a big canopy made of nylon and nylon and strings you know you're just hanging from nylon and strings and <laughs> 
my thought when I jumped out, I was like, who was the first guy to do this? Um, I don't know. I know a little bit of history, I guess. I think the first parachutes ever used were like, they were like stunts done by like crazy people in like the 1700s or 1800s or something like. Right. (laughs) Cause I'm like, who was like, I'm going to jump off of this and like, let me take my sheet and just like see if it works. Yeah. And, um, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, drew up like, uh, like blueprints for a parachute, you know, I don't think he ever built any, but you know, uh, it's a relatively simple concept, you know, um, nowadays we have really incredible parachutes. I actually have a couple in my closet right over here. It's funny. You end up just with a bunch of parachutes if you do this shit for long enough. Um, they're like three-dimensional. They're like basically inflatable. So the front end of the parachute is a little bit lower because the lines going to the front are shorter than the lines going to the back so that's obviously going to make you move this way and then at that leading edge there's open open cells so the air movement moves into the 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 you know inflatable parachute basically and that forward movement pressurizes it and then it becomes like uh, a semi-rigid um, airfoil, just kind of like an airplane wing, how it's shaped in a certain way to produce lift. Um, so yeah, the technology is amazing now. I don't know who the first people to do it, but this guy, Bill Booth develops tandem jumping. He, uh, with United nice. technologies. Yeah. Which is crazy that all the guys who developed all this equipment are legends, you know, like you can only imagine being like, yeah, let's, let's try doing two people with one pair. <laughs> right. Like the first time that happened, it's like, well, okay. Like we yeah, signed up just, for this. Yeah. So a lot of people died, you know, in the process <laughs> of all this stuff getting developed. So, you know, yeah. hats off to them and, you know, their sacrifices. Paving the right. Paving the way for all of us to get our adrenaline rush. It's amazing. So, okay. So back to when you first started doing this. So again, like, do you have any fear like towards these things or did it kind of become a, cause I know for me, when I jumped, I had a lot of fear on really random things and it was a moment for me to be like, Oh, okay. If I can jump out of a plane, then why am I freaking out about this other ordinary thing that I feel fear about? Yeah um yeah i mean fear is always like a part of everything you know i think with skydiving it's interesting because like if you i'm a really rational person so like i looked at the statistics and stuff and i looked at the gear like when in my first jump course i was like okay this gear makes sense like everything made sense to me and i'm fairly confident in my ability to perform in those sorts of environments i guess So like, yeah, it's definitely scary and crazy, like being on in the door of an airplane for the, for the first time and throughout the, throughout the progression, you know, and sometimes you get what we call gear fear. So like, you know, you'll be in the plane already on the way up and you'll be kind of like looking at your gear, like, you know, can I, can I really trust this thing? Like, can I really get out of this airplane with this, this equipment and, you know, trust it to do what it's supposed to do. Right. Um, so like fear is helpful, you know, it keeps us vigilant, it keeps us from getting complacent. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so fear, fear is usually most present when there's progression happening, you know, when you're, okay. when you're, when you're on that edge, you know, right. like for example, like just getting out of the plane nowadays, like I have like maybe 700 something skydives now. 
um, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much compared to a lot of people in the industry. Uh, but yeah, just getting out of the plane is like no big deal now. It's it's like dropping in, like, like compared to dropping in on a skateboard, you know, yeah. like for skateboarders, the very first time they drop in might be scary, but then eventually that's just how they start their run, you know? So right. it's kind of a lot like that, I guess. So but, it's yeah. it's almost like with anything and it's just the, the perception that we have behind whatever it is that we're going to do. So I like this. This is a good reminder. It's like whatever is you know creating fear in our lives we just take that first step no matter what because we figured out a really safe way to jump out of airplanes like if we can do that we can do pretty much you know we can do a lot which is cool yeah and speaking of like all those people that paved the way like learning you can learn in two ways you can learn from your experience or you can learn from other people's experience you know right. and in, in these environments where the consequences are so high it's definitely much wiser to learn from other people's experience you know so if you're able to like just because it's it's your first step into a new space um doesn't mean that it, you know if, if other people have done it before you know take the time to like see what they did and take their advice and and you know see what mistakes they may have made so that you can avoid those mistakes and you can you know it's not the complete unknown you know right oh my yeah. gosh so i'm just being reminded now of my experience where tony and i were kind of in the back of the the plane so we jumped i think almost last second to last and everybody in front of me were, were solo jumpers. And so all I could hear out of the plane was shoo, shoo, shoo. and I was like, holy shit, <laughs> like that's what we're going to be doing. It's going that fucking fast. But yeah, I, I got the gear fear, even though it wasn't my gear. I was just like, Hey, Tony, like you ready? And he was like, well, I don't know. And he was just messing with me the whole time. <laughs> yeah, we do that. <laughs> It's funny, but yeah, anyway, I kind of want to sidestep just for a second because this has been on my mind too. And I think it's hilarious. Um, I'm probably going to butcher his name right now, but I want to like talk about the beef you have with Aubrey Barkas. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. This is super random. I, I kind no, of feel like good. this is like an inside joke between us. Um, so for the That's listeners, so I'm funny. sorry. This is just like, what the fuck am I listening to? Like, why did she ask that? Okay. Cause it's because um, one time I posted a quote by him, but we, we tend to also Zach and I talk, uh, you know, some spiritual stuff, some metaphysical stuff. And yeah. uh, that's a whole other reason why I wanted to have you on here too, Zach. Uh, so yeah, that's why I want to ask that question. Cause I just think this is so hilarious. <laughs> um just in general like why the guy kind of bugs me I guess yeah or just like the spiritual like you know when people get like a big spiritual ego I tend to yeah. talk about that sometimes on my my episodes here because you know everything is spiritual like jumping out of a plane like that feels like a spiritual moment like that yeah. was a religious experience experience for me personally so you know it's all intertwined yeah um well it's actually funny because Believe it or not, um, like working in skydiving actually was sort of like my plan B. My okay. plan A, so maybe a part of my uh, 
disdain for Aubrey Marcus comes from a place of like jealousy, maybe deep down, you know, because yeah. I kind of, I wanted to be a writer and a philosopher. Um, in my youth, uh, I did a lot of, uh, I was really always like fascinated by people like Alan Watts, Terrence McKenna, um, you know, uh, Timothy Leary, even, you know, like Ram Dass, yeah uh so and you know and i was fascinated by um you know psychedelics um like yeah. you know started smoking weed thought it would be it was curious you know started when i was really young and then quickly became way more interested in the like you know consciousness expanding aspects like the more right. interesting aspects than the just like oh this is fun you know i want to get high and have fun you know right and that same thing drew me into like you know psilocybin lsd um etc and i was reading all the literature you know I, I studied like the whole thing with tim leary and richard albert doing the um the clinical trials of lsd at harvard oh yeah, and how yeah. They got the boot and how richard albert went to india and uh, all these crazy stories you know and um you know let me not go let me not wanted too far from this question i guess but um, no i love it i love it you can go as far as you want because honestly this was just my intro into the like the spiritual philosophy stuff because we don't we don't need to have any beef with anybody i just thought it was hilarious yeah no and i actually kind of want to explain a little bit because it's it's totally relevant you know um because there comes a time you know, like this quote by Alan Watts comes to mind about meditation where he's like, you know, I sit down for a while and then when I'm done sitting down, I get up, you know, and, and it's kind of like that, I guess, like, you know, it like, thank God I didn't spend my whole life just, uh, you know, uh, sitting around taking acid and like thinking about stuff, <laughs> you know, like, right. It seems um, pretty easy to do for my own self. You know, like I like to sit around and think all the time. So I can only imagine. Yeah. So I think, you know, I really enjoy all that stuff. And I was always really into like science too. Like when I, when it was time to go to college, I was between physics and um, like cosmology or, you know, um, yeah, just physics stuff. And then yeah. on the other hand of reality, on the other side of reality, you have like, you know, the external and the internal. So the other side was, do I want to study neuroscience and like psychopharmacology and try to understand like how these chemicals have such a profound effect on consciousness, you know? And like, cause we have this like soup of like electrical impulses and neurotransmitters, like that are apparently uh, like the operating system that our subjective experience like is like, you know, founded on, or, you know, we, we don't know anything about consciousness. We don't know where it comes from. And I don't know. So yeah, I was going one of those two directions. I ended up going with physics and drop it. I, when I dropped out, I had a 3.6 GPA, but it kind of came down to like, I want to go experience life, you know, like I've done enough thinking I've had enough like psychedelic experiences in the dorms and like in the, you know, and I've done enough, uh, chemistry labs and stuff like what, what is life, you know, what does life have to offer like out there, you know, like I want to, so that kind of led me around and then I ended up having, ended up at that job in Santa Barbara and then um, was like, okay, I got to solve the money problem really. And that's when I decided to pursue skydiving. But so to kind of like circle back around um, to what I was just saying about, you know, you sit for a while and then eventually you get up is like um 
yeah, you can have really profound experiences through these substances and stuff. But then like, um, one thing that's so great about skydiving and base jumping and stuff like that is like, it's really happening. Like something yeah. is actually happening in the, this, on this physical plane with very serious consequences. Right. You know? Right. And, and your ability to, to, to show up in those moments and, and, um, perform, you know, not just exist and like, flatter yourself with your ideas like you know uh, create, theory, create theories yeah yes. and just go Seem on cool. it, it just, you know it, it, it's like yeah so the, the beef with Aubrey Marcus is like it's probably something I don't like about myself you know we're all mirrors for each other and shit you know but that whole that whole thing and yeah it's like your ego just gets just uh, there's a story, another story that Alan Watts tells. He goes, you know, there's thieves in the house. The cops come in, they go up to the next floor. And then when the cops go up to that floor, they go up to the next one. And so the yeah. same thing happens with our ego. As soon as we like think, oh, I've like come to transcend my ego. And now I'm like, I'm enlightened or whatever. Your ego has just like changed shells, you know, like a fucking, like a hermit crab or whatever. And yeah. so it seems to me that like Aubrey seems to have, he goes on hundreds of ayahuasca experiences. And, you know, I don't hate the guy, but it just seems like, uh, it's like, what are you doing, bro? <laughs> like, what's, what's the end game here? You know, like how many realms? Cause he, he wants to go to the other realms, I think. Yeah. Well, in all the realms, I feel like exist on top. They're all stacked on top right. of each other. It's just and the how like, it's exactly what you're talking about going up the floors. Yeah. And I think that you know, saving the world is no simple task, but like, I think, uh, holding retreat, expensive retreats for people that are like privileged enough to be like, I'm going to go spend a month doing like workshops because I have the money and leisure time to go do this. And like, I don't know, it just, it's like, it just seems a little bit like, uh, like, self-gratifying you know it's it's like it's it, I don't know um it's funny though because I feel like I'm I'm totally getting what you're getting at and to speak real quick about the ego in the mirror oh sorry about that that's um, okay wait one sec here he is a wanted oh, man right. we got it let's see <laughs> no worries <laughs> So speaking about the ego and the mirrors, so it's funny that you said that because you're like, well, this might just be, you know, something I don't like about myself. I find myself in this situation so often to where I don't even know if I'm really having like an issue, like, especially with other people, like I'm going to give that example. Um, I tend to be, you know, non-confrontational anyway, like I can really just communicate for the most part. But if I do have those moments where I feel like, like an issue or like, oh, I want to like talk about that. I'll always do the mirror thing, which I think is a good thing. You know, that was my, before I was a really reactive person growing up as a kid and like teenager or whatever. And so now I'm like, okay, cool. Self-awareness. This is great. But now sometimes too, I'm like, is everything a mirror? Because now I don't know if I'm going to ever express myself or my feelings. <laughs> um, 
well, we could get real deep here, but I think in general, like sometimes people are just assholes, you know? <laughs> okay, For thank sure. you. You just provided me clarity. <laughs> yeah, sometimes people are totally just assholes and it's like, I don't, you know, and also I don't think we have to actively be, uh, be, be uh, involved in behaviors in order to like, like say you see someone um, that's being like, I guess, egotistical, you know, in a spiritual woo-woo way, like, you know, like the thing that drives me nuts about Aubrey, like the thought that um, that's me, that's something I don't like about myself. Um, I don't think that necessarily means that I am definitely still doing that. I think you can be like, oh, that's something that really like rubs me the wrong way. So that can not, that doesn't necessarily mean like that's something I need to stop doing. You may have already stopped doing that, it's just a reminder of like, that's not who I want to be, you know, like, right. I don't want to uh, have those, those traits or whatever. So, so, you know, it can just be a reminder of like what we expect from ourselves and like who we want to be. I like that. I like that reminder for sure. Cause sometimes I'm like, I'm just passive. <laughs> like Yeah. But you but know, sometimes, yeah, you got to speak up too, for sure. Sometimes, you know, right? Yeah. We can't um, be doormats over here because we should speak up to ourselves too. You know, I mean, that's right. another like to to bring it back into that sort of theme. It's like, uh, you know, we shouldn't beat ourselves up, but like we don't want to like let ourselves get away with everything, you know. So right. like in the same way, you shouldn't tolerate certain things from other people. Like you, know, you shouldn't tolerate everything from yourself either you know like if you if you made a promise to yourself and you're like bailing on that promise or you're like being super lazy and you expect better from yourself like you can be like hey we're not gonna we're not just gonna like ignore this right now we're gonna con- we're gonna confront the- ourselves or the other person and be like no we're drawing a boundary here right and, and uh, yeah so also i want to talk back about the drugs <laughs> Sorry, yeah, <laughs> the, because I've never, I've never done acid. I love some shrooms only like microdose them. Those are great. Um, but I want to just share this story because I think that you would probably have some insight on DMT in general. Um, so I went to art school and my first weekend there before classes even started I had like smoked weed a few times, that kind of stuff before going to school and like drank whatever, but I never really tried any drugs. And I was like, well, I'm at art school. So like, hell yeah. Like I'm going to try something while I'm here. So my roommate goes, oh, have you ever done DMT? I was like, no, I haven't. Like, what's that? And she's like, oh, you're going to love it. Like she was this really hyper girl like this. She's like, no, you're going to love it. Oh my God. It's amazing. I was like, okay. Like you like weed. I'm assuming that it's like just to that in that level of things <laughs> yeah it's like weed right and so I was clueless like never heard about it before um so my first weekend at school uh did DMT with my roommate and then this guy who happened to be from North Carolina where I'm from and so he was just very quiet and cool but he didn't really say anything he was just like I brought the DMT and I was like, where did you find him? <laughs> like to my room, <laughs> but it was all three of us. It was great, great experience. Um, but yeah, I saw colors I didn't know existed. Um, I didn't know also that you're supposed to lay down while you do DMT or, you know, it's like preferable to just kind of relax. 
um, we were on an abandoned golf course and we walked around. And so my oh, leg, yeah. yeah. And so my legs felt like they were 70 feet long. Like the depth perception was crazy. It felt like it took like a minute to reach the ground with each step. And then I finally just laid down and, and let the kaleidoscope images appear. Um, but still to this day, it was like, it was all I needed. You know, I like anytime anybody had any acid or anything, I was like, hey, I'm okay. You know, like I'm good. I know it's a different experience, but the yeah. DMT was so lovely. And then when I told people that, you know, uh, throughout the years, people were like, that's the first drug you did. I was like, oh, well, it's nice for me. I probably wouldn't have done it if I knew all the things that people say about it. So. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I mean, do you have any questions about it or like, I mean, yeah, like I, I want to know this stuff forever. Like, that's exactly what I want you to do. It was like, okay, so what, I don't even know what I really did because some people say that it's the chemical that's released when we die. Some people that's say, true. yeah. And then, but, but I know that the guy made it for us. So like, how do you even make it? I mean, we don't, I need to like, I guess do a cooking a lessons or whatever. The chemistry. I can yes, describe yes. the chemistry a little bit. Yes, please. So, um, most classic psychedelics are tryptamines. So they have a tryptamine base and tryptamine is actually, um, I believe it's an, an amino acid that's like in pretty much every living thing. So DMT is the simplest of all of these molecules among like LSD, psilocybin, psilocin, because DMT is, DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine. So that's, it's just a tryptamine molecule with two methyl groups added onto the end of its like uh, little tail uh, for lack of, I don't know. I don't know if these are proper chemistry terms or whatever, but. Makes sense to um, me. Yeah, so it's a pretty simple molecule, but you just add um, two carbons and six hydrogens. And then you take this totally innate uh, chemical and it becomes the most potent psychedelic known to man, you know? And um <clears throat> Melatonin is also extremely closely related to DMT. No way. Um, yeah, they're super similar molecules. And then so LSD um, is like a is like a behemoth version of of, uh, of DMT, I guess. It still has the tryptamine core, but it's just this huge molecule. So I think um, and psilocybin is um, uh, sort of like a medium size between DMT and LSD. So I think that probably has to do with the rate that they get metabolized at, you know, DMT metabolizes super quick. Um, yeah. That's what I liked about it was that for me to step my toes into the water of, um, psychedelics, that one was a yeah. good, like 45 minutes. And then I was just, I was like, cool. Like, that's yeah, great. Without committing to like a six to an hour acid trip. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um, I think. One thing that's cool, so like DMT, it sounds like you didn't do that much DMT, you know, because DMT can take you to the point where you're fully dissociated from your body and like, you know, all that stuff. So, okay, um, that might have been it because, yeah, when people say like, wow, you did DMT, I was like, oh, it was like a beautiful experience, but I didn't feel like I was, you know, I've, I've heard of people too where they go, like one of my, the guy who made it, he later, did a trip by himself and he was like yeah i went and like hung out with myself as a kid and we were in a completely different world i didn't even know i was like laying down at a party and i woke up and yeah, yeah. 
So because of my experience in the past with things like LSD and psilocybin in like pretty high doses, I'm pretty intimidated by DMT actually. So like really? I've smoked it before and I've, I've had DMT experiences, but I've always been hesitant to like push it. Yeah. And I also feel like I'm kind of, since I've been in these sort of uh, states, these altered states before, I feel like I'm really kind of in a way more sensitive to them. Mm-hmm. So like, um, and um, yeah, I don't know. So DMT, because it's so short acting and so potent, it can be really disorienting. And oh. if you're um, trying to like be, you know, if you're trying to do any reflecting and, you know, introspection and stuff like that, it can be difficult. It can be, it can be difficult to keep um, that capacity with an right. intensity of a DMT experience. Whereas, make- oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Very good. This is just making so much more sense because, um, like, uh, I know another friend at art school who kind of got like addicted to going into these really, really deep places and was pretty much sleeping the entire time. But they were, but you know, they kept doing DMT trips because I guess they were going somewhere else, you know? Yeah. So higher doses of DMT will like take you. And I get, I haven't actually gone this deep on DMT because I'm like, I'm a little bit intimidated by it. I don't know you know, what I expect to find there, you know. I respect Um, that. Also, there's a sense of one thing that Terrence McKenna used to say, or no, I think it was Alan Watts again. Yep, this is Alan Watts again. Speaking on psychedelic experiences, he would say, once you get the message, you hang up the phone, right? Mm. So um, I think I got the message on, on with my, through my LSD experiences in the past. And so... Um, when you really hit the point of like full Satori, like full, the, like the full ego death, um, realization, it, you almost, you feel kind of silly. It's a weird, it's almost, you feel a little bashful, like a little embarrassed, like, oh, like, you know, what did (laughs) I do? Yeah. you know, My ego's gone. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, um, so like, it's kind of like, you get what you wanted but you realize like you had it all along kind of like it's 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 hard to describe um but you know so that's all i would expect to find in the dmt space you know i might go into it just for the sake of the like the aesthetic things that i've heard about like these like hyperdimensional geometry uh, and entities and stuff like that all sounds really fun, I guess, and interesting. But, um, hey, sounds like a good time. Yeah. So I guess I liked the the um, LSD experience um, because I feel like your rational mind, like your ability to introspect and reflect and like and get these downloads, um, yeah. seems to stay fully intact. And right. rather than just getting blasted into this psychedelic space that's really intense and then coming down from it and being like, whoa, what just happened? You're, you kind of like marinate in this in this state for a while and like lots of things can come through, I guess, during that time. And like, um, you know, uh, yeah. Right. So interesting, interesting stuff for sure. So how do you feel too? Because I definitely love, and I feel like I'm, I'm semi uneducated in this area of things. So that's why I'm asking so many questions. Um, because I think the, the fact that we're using these compounds now 
to heal people and to provide relief is so interesting um, because even LSD is just, isn't that the one totally man-made chemical or is that wrong? It's technically a semi-synthetic. Okay. So there's a precursor called LSA that is naturally occurring and um, which comes from a fungus called ergot um, or that's where it's most commonly found, I guess. So actually that's, this is how LSD was discovered accidentally by this dude, Albert Hoffman. Um, he was studying, um, he was making, he was synthesizing these analogs of compounds he found in, in different molds and fungi um, because of, because that's where penicillin came from, right? They discovered oh, right. through this mold or whatever, this fungus, they were able to create this medicine that's like phenomenal, a phenomenal antibiotic. And so he was looking for drugs like that. He was looking for antibiotics and stuff like that. So he, he modified this chemical LSA to a close analog of it, LSD. And um, he like, I think the first time he ingested it was by accident. He might've like <gasps> spilled some on his fingers or something. And then the second time he did it on purpose, um, he right. took like a milligram or something like that, which is actually like 10 full doses which are normally 100 micrograms and then he rode it he gets, started feeling really weird and rode his bicycle home to from his lab and that's that was on like i think it was april 19th of like the 1930s or something sometime in the 1930s and that's so now people celebrate bicycle day as the the day that the first lsd experience ever happened uh Love it. But I feel like I lost your question there. What we're no, you're good. Just like how we're using these com uh, compounds oh. to heal people now, and you you kind of touched on it too with the penicillin, knowing that that's what he was doing was looking for medicine in the first place, and you know yeah. seeing it integrated into well, you know we're trying to integrate these things into modern medicine. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a huge shame that these things got lumped in with all the a lot of really bad things like crack cocaine or methamphetamine or um you know and drugs in general were like demonized way more than they should have been during during like the war on drugs and everything like that yeah, but, I, I mean there's been lots have you ever heard of a guy named alexander shulgin no so if anyone out there has done mdma or molly or ecstasy or whatever this man actually uh, invented it or discovered it, depending on how you look at it. And he, as opposed to Albert Hoffman, he did it on purpose. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, that seems like the story behind Molly, you know, it would be like a purposeful thing. Yeah. So he actually had a mescaline experience and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but mescaline is not a trip to me like LSD and psilocybin and DMT. Mescaline oh. is actually a phenethylamine or it might be pronounced phenethylamine. Okay. Um, and so, and he's an organic chemist. So I think the story goes like he, he developed a pesticide for a chemical company that made the chemical company super rich. So they were like, we're going to just fund whatever research and development you want to do. Like you Love do it. whatever you want. And at this point, no, there wasn't any, like, I don't think weed was even legal at this point, you know? So like the idea okay. of drugs being illegal and like these bad, scary things wasn't even like in the cultural zeitgeist, I guess, at the time. So he, had this mescaline experience, which is a chemical, uh, an alkaloid in peyote cactus and San Pedro and stuff. And he was so moved by the experience um, 
that he decided he was just going to synthesize um, compounds similar to mescaline and, and, and test them on himself, beginning with an extremely low dose um, in case it happened to be, in, in case it came across an extraordinarily potent substance. Right. And then slowly increased the dose until he felt something and he had a whole met. Um, he had a whole way of categorizing those experiences. Uh, he had like a qualitative uh, uh, way of measuring the effects that were happening. And um, so he synthesized hundreds and hundreds of compounds and tested them on himself. And if he found them to be interesting enough, he would, he would give them to his wife too. Oh, and they would like take these it. brand new drugs together and like, you know, have, <laughs> you know, so um <laughs> One of those substances was um, was MDMA, and MDMA is um, like mescaline, a, a phenethylamine. Um, and so the reason he did all this stuff is because of like what you're what you're talking about now is he saw the potential of these things as like tools to um, help us understand ourselves better, and mm. you know potentially like uh, you know he saw them as potentially super beneficial things. And, and he knew that the only way we could study this phenomena that he was trying to study was not by giving these drugs to animals and then seeing what their behavior does. Right. The only way you really could study these things is to actually ingest them yourself and so that you could directly um, experience the effects on consciousness because that's the, that's the interesting part, I guess. And so um, did he figure out that you know, I've heard that MDMA is being treated or being used to treat depression now. Um, and PTSD is the main one. I oh, think. PTSD is the main one. <gasps> That's that cool. MDMA is being used for um, because it makes people less anxious while stimulating their like emotional stuff. Um, ah, this so is like, why everybody most- wants to hug. Yeah, yeah. So usually things that make you less anxious are are sedatives, you know, like Xanax or like, um, you know, benzodiazepines and stuff like that. They actually will slow your brain down and that's what relieves the anxiety. MDMA is the only non-sedating anxiolytic known to man. So anxiolytic being something that reduces anxiety. And it also stimulates like, you know, a lot of these emotional things. So like, and also I think it's being used in uh, marriage counseling too, which is like a great idea, of course. Great Um, idea. (laughs) Because people are able to put their bullshit aside, you know, the emotional stuff comes up and then they're, they're more open and they're less defensive. And um, so in the context of PTSD, I think it helps people to address things that like scare them to like, to even think about. So mm-hmm. like they, their anxiety is relieved, but then, and then they can kind of, they can kind of like more closely see the connection that this traumatizing event has to like their emotion, their emotional self and how they, how they, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like at a loss for words to describe it, but it is, right. it's, it's, it's definitely, definitely like a really promising thing to be studying and to be and to be doing for sure and a lot of people are doing really great work in that it's so it's so cool because knowing how much our neurons can rewire and then not even know it so the pattern like you said with the the post-traumatic stress that becomes that neural pathway and it's so hard to release that 
unless you're aware of it. And so just being able to rewire, I feel like taking the MDMA or taking whatever substance is just like that opportunity to kind of like break and recreate new pathways. Yeah. So it suspends that like rigid, um, you know, um, sort of entrenched uh, process, you know, that your neurons are doing. So it suspends that normalcy and introduces a little bit of chaos and a little bit more free association. And then, um, you know, and then it makes sense that people are able to like explore different neural pathways. And then, you know, maybe as they come down, hopefully be able to settle into those as their like new normal. And I think that's the the premise of like the new psychiatry because the old psychiatry, like, I don't know if you've seen all these articles coming out about the chemical imbalance hypothesis being totally unsubstantiated which has been the truth all along. There's never been any evidence to support the chemical imbalance hypothesis. I Um, am so glad you said that because people get so defensive about this and it's been very taboo to talk about. However, I completely agree with you. Like I don't, I don't subscribe to the belief that we can't cure certain mental ailments. Um, Sure. Some might be harder than others, but I'm, I'm very hopeful. And I I've never liked the, Oh, if you're diagnosed with X, Y, and Z, I, I know a big one is like bipolar. It's like, Oh, you're bipolar forever. You have a chemical imbalance yeah. and this, and it's like, yes, that's going to be more difficult to cure, but I don't, I've never liked that whole idea of telling somebody like, this is you forever. We're, we can't fix it. Yeah. So I have a few things to say about this. Cause I'm super passionate about this too. I love it. Um, uh, I think that, you know, the DSM, you know, which is the, the, the manual by which psychiatric diagnoses are, are, are assigned. Um, right. It's just so like such a reductionist, like oversimplification of a process that is so complicated. Like the amount of neural net connections we have is like, like the brain is the most complicated system that humans have ever discovered, you know? And it's like right. what we're using to, can, to discover it too, which is trippy. Um, but yeah, so the, the chemical imbalance theory, I think was, was established when they gave like flipped out psychotics, dopamine blockers, mm. and that chilled them out, which like, of course it would, but then they go, oh, so they must be psychotic because their dopamine's really high, you know? Oh. And, and so that was basically, so it was just a hypothesis. And, and so, and you can't measure the levels of someone's neurotransmitters directly, but um, not to get too technical in here, but I, I just happen to know this because- and Oh, no, get like technical, get technical. Share it. So when your presynaptic nerve, which is like the nerve that's sending a message to the next nerve, puts out neurotransmitters, because the neurotransmitters are stored in that presynaptic nerve, puts out neurotransmitters and the neurotransmitter will bind with the postsynaptic nerve, the one that's receiving the message. And then those neurotransmitters will either get taken back up into the presynaptic nerve to be used again, or they'll metabolize in, in, inside the neuron or in the surrounding cerebrospinal fluid. And then they just kind of like exist in the cerebrospinal fluid until they're, uh, you know, flushed out in some, some whatever way, I guess. But basically the point of that is you can't measure the levels of someone's neurotransmitters, but you can take a sample of their cerebrospinal fluid and then you can measure the levels of the metabolites. 
So like dopamine has has particular metabolites, serotonin has particular metabolites. So by measuring the levels of these metabolites, you get a window into the level of these neurotransmitters. And so they did this with a vast array of patients with tons of different diagnoses. And um, they found that they all fell within the same bell curve and they couldn't find any correlation between a certain diagnosis and a certain like, certain like differences in levels of these metabolites so that there was no like because what you if the chemical if the chemical imbalance hypothesis is correct you'd expect to see like oh the levels of this particular metabolite seems to be particularly low in the bipolar group or and particularly high in uh you know the adhd group or whatever or something like that you know right and but they didn't, they didn't see that at all. There's no, there no correlation between diagnoses and levels of these chemicals in the cerebrospinal fluid. So it's never been substantiated. This was a while ago. This was like, this isn't even recent science. This is old science, you know? And, um, and yeah, I don't want to like rant here forever, but I guess oh, uh, keep ranting. Speaking, speaking of what you were saying about people getting all defensive and stuff, it's like, um, because taking medication is a big, big choice. And like, I'm not a doctor. You should listen to your doctor probably most likely. <laughs> but, and I think that the, the current medications we have are good for like interventions. Like you're having a serious episode, mm-hmm. like you're having panic attack. Xanax is a great drug, you know? Yeah. But like taking Xanax every single fucking day or like, you know, if you're really depressed, maybe taking an SSRI to boost your serotonin. To, to pull you out of it initially so that you yeah. can then start to make changes and try to like, and then, and then try to get off of it as soon as possible. That seems like, I mean, again, I'm not a doctor. I, I'm kind of, just, I'm just a dude, you know, but that seems like a much more appropriate approach with this, with the drugs that we have now, you know, but if we're trying to boost someone's serotonin, seems like you're way better off just giving them some MDMA, you know, instead of like these SSRIs are going to take a while to work and stuff. It's like you go in, give them a psychedelic session that just breaks them out of their, of their current pattern. Um, yeah, that seems like it, like a good idea. I don't know. And that's, I and mean, they're doing ketamine therapy now. Yeah. Oh. Basically what ketamine therapy does is it just, it just suspends your, you're like these loops that you're in that you're just these thought loops that you get stuck in, you know? Right. Oh, this is so interesting. Um, because I also, I, I know too, I have a family member who's been on, um, like clonopins for a really long time. I'm not sure if they are still on them, but when you look at brain scans of people who have just for years been prescribed medications like that, it's, there's more gray matter that forms in the brain, because like you said, it shuts down certain areas. So then it's really hard to start creating those neural pathways, apparently again, once you get off. So then that's where the dependency comes in. So, you know, again, I'm not a doctor either, but I do like your theory where it's like using it as a initial tool to help, but then, yeah, trying to get off of it as soon as possible so that it doesn't almost loop back in a 360 and create the same problem you started taking the drug for. Exactly. Well, this is, this brings up something. So I didn't just think of all this stuff myself. I did read a bunch of books on this because I was so fascinated. And one of the biggest, one of the main books I could recommend is a book called the anatomy of an epidemic by a dude named Robert Whitaker. So he, he, he writes all about this, but one of the things he points to is that 
the brain is not like a mechanism, you know, it's not like it has, it's not in a fixed state, you know, that it's going to remain in over time. So even if the chemical imbalance hypothesis were true, um, you know, let's say your brain was a mechanism and it had, and it was like low on dopamine or something, then you could give it a drug that brings the dopamine up and then like, it would be good to go forever, you know? Wow. But since it's an organism, not a mechanism, your brain is in a, is dynamic, it's a dynamic system, you know, so it, it, it adapts to things, you know, so your brain, you know, you give, you give someone, um, you know, like, let's say you give someone Adderall for ADHD and their dopamine levels are just way higher all the time. Your brain is going to be like, well, we're getting way more dopamine transmission than we should be getting. So let's go ahead and fix that by removing some of these dopamine receptors, or we're going to make these dopamine receptors a little bit less sensitive. So then, so then over time, you know, the drugs effects uh, start to like taper off, you know, the benefits start to, start to taper off and people report this with SSRIs and they just have to keep increasing the dose. And then the trouble with that is, it's sort of like then the, then the chemical imbalance hypothesis becomes sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where let's say yeah you you you're depressed and you go on SSRIs and you have this really high serotonin so your brain removes some serotonin receptors and you go okay well the drug's not really working that much anymore maybe maybe we shouldn't be taking this drug at all because it's not working so then you just stop taking it and now all of a sudden you go back to normal levels of serotonin, but now your serotonin receptors are less sensitive or there's less serotonin receptors altogether. And then you do have drastically lower serotonin transmission than you had in the first place. And then you plunge into symptoms of depression. And then it looks like that was the source of the problem all along. Whereas really the drug actually changed your brain to be dependent on it and then was removed so suddenly that it produced the effect, the symptoms that it was trying to treat in the first place. <laughs> Boom. Oh my gosh. I could talk about this for like three more hours. <laughs> like, Cause it really, it really is interesting stuff for sure. Yeah. Like I said, I was between physics and, uh, and neuroscience and psychopharmacology. So I guess I ended up learning a bit about, about it anyway, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's cool too, because, you know, we, I love philosophy. You know, you were speaking about that in the beginning and I had uh, Nick Hinton on here a few weeks back and he was you know, talking I've been about following that guy forever. I wish really? I had listened to that episode before I came on Yeah, I've been following him. Cause like, yeah, it's really similar, similar vibes. You know, like I, I, can, I put myself in that category a little bit for sure. Totally, right. You know? That's so funny. Yeah. It's a small world. And, um, so I had him on here and he was talking about, I was like, yeah, I love philosophy. Like sometimes I was like, oh, I wish I, you know, did that instead. And he was like, you don't need to go to school for that. Like, you know, yeah. at yeah. this point in time too, if there's books about it and you can still get your, you know, your no pun intended dose of whatever it is that you want to read about, you wow. know? Yeah. I'm so good. That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I know we're hitting our hour mark. So I just want to like finish off with my question that I always ask. And so what do you, Zach Papier, see yourself doing in the next three to five years? Does it involve this whole pharmacop? Is it called pharmacopoeia? Is that right? Uh, pharmacology, psychopharmacology. Um, you might be thinking Pharma of Hamilton's pharmacopoeia. Have you seen that show? I am. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. 
the best <laughs> show ever. Yeah, that guy is a legend. I love that guy. That is exactly what I'm thinking about. So yes, pharmacology is the correct term. <laughs> um, well, see, because I since I didn't go to school for it, I'm not really like an authority on it. Like I didn't know what I would do, you know. Um, and so, I mean, you know, maybe I'll take a take a shot at the philosophy thing. Yeah. At, you know, and try to like put out content or something. But like at the end of the day, like I'm a little bit of like a pessimist these days as far as like the the future of humanity and stuff and like, you know, our political systems and you know uh, all that stuff. So congratulations, you actually are a philosopher now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so because it seems like there's really no future, you know, like I mean, yeah, granted, you, we might be able to get a colony on Mars before uh Earth is totally fucked. So, like, you know, we will as Elon says, we may be able to preserve the light of consciousness, you know, into, into the future after this planet is toast. But like, to what end, you know, we're just gonna be stranded on a desert planet, Mars, you know, like we'll still exist, but like, you know, then what? So going back into like the deep philosophy stuff, like one thing that, not to just completely rip off Alan Watts this whole episode. That's <laughs> okay. We love, about- we love Alan Watts. He talks about how like there is only this moment, you know, and he's totally yeah. right. Like the only thing we ever have is now and like death is a guarantee. And um, so that brings us back to the parachuting stuff, you know, like, it, you know, you, you're going to die someday. And also the fact that we're death is a guarantee. It kind of makes the risking death on base jumps. Like it kind of like softens the severity of that risk a little bit, you know? Right. Like uh, what's the worst like, that can happen? The thing that's already going to happen, you know, right, basically, right. I guess. So, so being able to actually get out there and have really amazing experiences with your friends and like face fears and, you know, challenge yourself to do incredible things. Um, not for the sake of a career or for the a salary or for success uh, or for any of those sort of like more concrete things, but purely for the sake of itself. That's where I feel like you really hit in the spot, you know, because uh, it's not adulterated by any ulterior motive that's not immediately present, you know, and mm. given the fact that we can only live in the present trying to get all the meaning we can out of the past and the future and just bring it all into the present, um, leaving none of it out. Um, that's like the pinnacle of like what we like of what life can be, I guess, you know? Right. I, I love that because, okay, I need to start, I'm going to try to find a new question, um, soon because what's so funny, it's happening to almost every guest guest. And I also agree with it too. Um, everybody right now is saying, we just want to live, you know, enjoy that present moment, like you're saying. And I think this is the first time where I'm seeing all of this integrated into just the, the general public more is, you know, like you said, everything kind of looks up in the air and what can we do except just enjoy this present moment? Yeah. So, you know, the whole, you know, people say like, oh, hustle culture is everywhere. I'm like, I'm kind of seeing it take a back seat, actually. Like, we're all just kind of trying to enjoy life. 
you know, be with friends, do what we love, have a beer, do a podcast, you know, all that good stuff. So, yeah, it's important to not take everything, not take things too seriously, I think. And um, I just had something else, but I think I lost it. Oh, but um, I do have that event coming up. Or by the way, do you do you have, um, are you on like a tight schedule? Because I'm happy to, uh, to keep talking, I guess. But I, you know, no, no pressure either way. Um, no, you're good. You're good. I, um, I end, I do end up having to go somewhere in a few hours. So I have to get some more work done, but you know, I yeah. also like to chat. So this is just a pleasurable part of my day. Um, but yeah, tell us about this event. So this is the other thing, guys, if you guys have been wanting to, um, you know, take, a the, take the leap, God, I'm, I'm really punny today. Um, yeah. So speaking to the speaking, you know, to trying to live now, you know, have these meaningful, epic experiences. Um, I have these buddies here in San Diego that, uh, have an event production company called Fest Vibes. And um, a few years ago, right before the pandemic, I brought one of them to come do a skydive up in uh, Lake Elsinore. And, I love it. Um, and he saw the location and he was like, do you guys have parties here? And I was like, yeah. And I don't remember exactly how this all went down, but basically the idea came up. He says, I thought of it. He says, I was like, hey, Rick, you should have a party here. Anyway, um, we have huge parties at this place all the time, just amongst skydivers, you know, Um and I was like, dude, we could, you could totally throw a party here. And if we bring out a bunch of people, we could do tandems all day. You know, we could do like a hundred tandems in a day and, you know, have a party going on all day. And so we did it and it was great. It was, it was epic. It was back in uh, early 2020. Um, wow. And so we've been, then the pandemic hit, so we weren't able to move forward with any, any, uh, and up doing it again uh, soon after the first one. But not too long ago, um, you know, I've been working at Scott of San Diego now since October. And not too long ago, I was like, hey, Ricky, you should come check out, um, you should come check out this location. We might be able to do one here. So he did. And uh, it's an epic location. And um, so now we are doing it again on uh, next Saturday on August 27th. Uh, we're going to have DJs going all day, like a full-blown stage, and we're going to have a, a beer garden, like a, a fenced-off area where you can drink alcohol during the day. You just can't have any drinks or do any drugs before you do your skydive, of course. Um, but yeah, you can come out, do a tandem skydive with us, and um, after your skydive, you can go grab a drink and hit the dance floor, and we're going until 9 p.m., and then there's going to be an after party in downtown San Diego as well, and for anyone who's local in San Diego, we're actually going to have shuttles bringing people from Pacific Beach to the location, which is um, kind of near East Lake or Hamul, California, which is just east of Chula Vista, super close to Mexico. Love it. But yeah, and um, I got a link uh, in my bio. I don't know. I could give that to you, but yeah, um, yeah. Send it to me, and I'll put it in the episode so people can, you know, okay. look at this event more. This Sweet. sounds so cool. And our main website is actually down right now because we got so much traffic that uh, so now we're just sending people straight to the ticketing website. So you just go, you book, you get the ticket, um, which would be general admission plus tandem, which you're, it's actually only like forty bucks or so. 
Love then it. In the confirmation email, you get a link, an exclusive link that you can then use to go book the actual skydive. So you got to make sure to do both of those things in order to do a skydive on that day. But love it. Yeah. Everybody, if you want to dip your toes into this realm of skydiving, I highly recommend it. It did change my life and I definitely need to go back. So everybody get on that event and I will post that link. Um, but yeah, Zach, thank you for coming on and sharing an hour with me. This was so lovely. Did I expect yeah, to start talking? Yeah, it always does. It's so crazy. Uh, I didn't expect to go into all of the, um, the pharma whatever. I'm not going <laughs> to say the word wrong again, but I love that. That was so enjoyable. And now I want to talk about it more and I'm going to get that book that you recommended. So yeah, you should check that one out for sure. I'll send you that. I'll text you that too. Oh, hell yeah. I'll put that in the link too, for anybody who is wanting to explore their brain and little funguses amongst us, all that good stuff. But yeah, everybody, thank you so much fungus for listening. Among us. Fungus among us. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Flipside Podcast, where we talk everything upside down and inside out. And today we had Zach Papier on here. You can find him on Instagram at Zach Papier. Is there anything where else people can find you? That's pretty much it. Just go there, guys. <laughs> go to the <laughs> IG. All right. Well, that is all for today. Zach, I hope you enjoy your day. And Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.